From my home studio, welcome to Evolve, groundbreaking Jewish conversations. When I'm talking about hope as a practice, I'm not talking about some fluffy thing. I'm talking about the kind of hope that you act on because we need to hold a vision of possibility in order to make it happen. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and my guest today is Dr. Barbara Brightman. We'll be discussing her Evolve essay, Hope as an Ethical Imperative. Barbara's essay was originally delivered as a talk at Philadelphia's Germantown Jewish Center as the centerpiece of the annual Stefan Presser Memorial Shabbat, which was named in honor of the late legal director of the Pennsylvania ACLU. Barbara is a therapist, social worker, spiritual director, we'll get into what that is, and longtime professor at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. This talk and essay, in a sense, was an attempt to offer therapy, not to an individual or, or to a family, but to a community and to a country. She spoke in December 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic was near its deadliest point in the United States. National life was haunted by the uncertainty over whether we'd have a peaceful transition of power from one administration to the next. And I've long thought that living through truly historic times mean you have no idea what's coming next. And, and we certainly didn't. Um, January 6th, the, the second impeachment trial, a peaceful inauguration, ongoing election denial, mass vaccinations, virus variants. It just kind of goes on and on. But, but this was delivered at a very specific point in time. And it's, uh, I think, important to keep that in mind. So much of who Barbara is and what she teaches and how she practices came out of a response to, to several tragedies and trauma that, that are really hard to fathom. We talk about some of it in, in this conversation, although we, we don't go through a ton of detail. In 1995, when Brightman was in her 40s, a beloved cousin was, was horrifically murdered. And she and her husband, Chaim, made the decision really to adopt her cousin's daughters, making Brightman a parent for the first time. And as they were, as they were dealing with that and adjusting and, and confronting a trauma I can't imagine, um, her world was shaken and, and collapsed when Chaim died suddenly while the family was on vacation. Brightman had to somehow keep going with two children in her care. And, and at the time, she was also about to start a, a program in pastoral training. We really take the time here to explore her process of grieving and healing. And, and, and because I thought her story could potentially or, or really have resonance now as millions of Americans and, and people around the globe are, are grieving, grieving the loss of loved ones and friends, family, in fact, I'll share, I just attended at my synagogue a memorial service for, for those who died during the pandemic, whether from COVID or not, and, and, and people hadn't had a chance to, to really mourn publicly before then. And it was powerful, cathartic, and, and heartbreaking just to hear about the parents, spouses, siblings, relatives, and dear friends lost to just one community. So... If there's an overarching thread to this, it's about how much the personal and the political, or at least the social, can be intertwined. And, and I think Barbara's message to how to get past difficult times as a nation, you know, is, 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 is really linked and stems from her experience with, with personal tragedy. And, and we'll talk about that. And just so you know, she wrote about these experiences in detail in Chapters of the Heart, Jewish Women Sharing the Torah of Our Lives, which was a, an anthology book published in 2013. Okay, as a reminder, the essays discussed on this show are available to read totally for free on the Evolve website, evolve.reconstructingjudaism.org. The essays are never required reading for the show, but we always recommend checking them out. 
Okay, so time for today's guest. Barbara Brightman, as I said, has served as Assistant Professor of Pastoral Counseling at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and she co-created, along with our executive producer, Rabbi Jacob Staub, RRC's program in Jewish Spiritual Direction. She received a Doctor of Ministry from the Graduate Theological Foundation. She's also a licensed clinical social worker and trauma-trained psychotherapist She has taught advanced practice at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Social Work. She's an avid yoga practitioner as well as an activist. And Bobby has an ongoing interest in how contemplative practices can ground and deepen social justice work. So with that, Dr. Barbara Brightman, welcome to the podcast. It's really a privilege to have you. Well, I'm looking forward to it and... uh... Yeah, I guess I have to get like warmed up here. <laughs> All right. So well, well here, here's the warm up. So Sam Walks, who's who's the editor of this show, we we often joke that I that I feel compelled to end each show with the hope question because we talk about all these racism and racial justice, climate change, and sometimes the, the listener can end up feeling a little bleak. So I feel like I have to end with the where's the hope. In this case, I'm gonna flip that script. So Starting with the hope question, your main thesis, what you call it, is that hope is, is an ethical imperative. And, and this goes beyond each of us in our individual lives, but really is, is, is um, something for society writ large. So I, I guess I wanted to just talk about what, what that ethical imperative is and what it means. Okay, well, that's a great question. So I mean, people often think about hope and hopefulness or hopelessness as if it's an emotion. It's a feeling. Sure. And um, what I really came to understand, especially during the, during, you know, during Trump's years and facing climate change, was that actually hope is a spiritual practice. Hope is not a feeling. And I think of this similarly to the way that I have come to think about forgiveness. People, I think, often make the mistake of thinking that forgiveness is a feeling, that you wait until you have some open-hearted feeling towards somebody who's hurt you, and then you can forgive them because that's how you feel. But in Judaism, it's really clear that forgiveness is a practice um, that, you know, we set aside a whole season to work on forgiveness. And it's by doing the practice that we come to take steps toward opening our heart. I came to understand that it's an ethical imperative to act on the basis of hope. And if you read that article, um, I quote from this midrash that I love, um, that I was pointed to by Rabbi Ari Lev Fenori. So I just like to read it of, to you. Of uh, Cole in West Philadelphia, right? Yes. So I, I just like to read it to you if that's okay. Um, the midrash asks, how did Noah manage to survive the flood and live to see his children exit the ark, thus begetting a new generation of humanity? How did Moses go from fleeing from Pharaoh to plunging him into the sea? How did Joseph go from being shackled in prison to a governor in Pharaoh's court? How did Mordecai go from being ready for the gallows to executing his executioners? In other words, The Midrash is asking, what made it possible for Noah and Moses and Joseph and Mordechai to transform life-threatening situations into radically transformed realities? And the Midrash, fortunately, doesn't just ask the question, it gives us an answer. And it says, it was because they could see a new world. That's that's a way of saying if if you can't imagine a new world, it's 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 not going to happen. So it's in, in a way it's about being effective as a citizen, being effective as, as an activist. That's, 
that's the ethical imperative you're, you're talking about? Yeah, the imperative is to be able to have a vision of the world that you want to live in. And then by holding on to hope as a practice, it sustains you to be able to work toward creating that world. If we get hopeless, you know, then we give up. And then the opposite of hope is despair. We fall into despair. So it's about cultivating hope by um, holding out that vision and imagining and believing that it's possible to create the world that we want to live in. But speaking for myself, I'm, you know, or, or for most of us, we're not biblical prophets. Maybe even most of us aren't, aren't visionaries on, on the level of, of some of the folks you, you talk about. So if how, you know, how does, how does, one who doesn't fit into those categories um, have, you know, have those visions that, that, that lead to the hope. Where, where well, does that come the, from? Well, the prophets may be putting out the vision. I think we, which is also very central to Judaism, we need one another to work together in community. It isn't, I think you're right, it is not a solo practice. It's a communal practice. It's participating with others in working toward the vision that, that maybe you know, the prophet can articulate. And you know, I, I mean, I have to say, in the United States, African-Americans, Black people have known this for hundreds of years um, up against outrageous and impossible odds you know, we shall overcome, you know, that there's the belief and the hope of continuing to believe that this is possible, that it is possible for Black people in this country to be full human beings. And we have to believe it's possible. We have to work communally together in order to be able to create the society that we want that we hope for. So it isn't a solo practice, it's a communal practice. And, you know, I think this is really different than, um, than the stance or the kind of companionship that pastoral caregivers, rabbis, friends, family would offer to somebody who is dying, where we know that they're mortal and whatever the situation is that they're in, they've gotten to the point where it's clear they're in active dying. So that's not a moment for hope. That's a moment for consolation. That's a moment for spiritual companionship on a journey that is um, going to end in death. So there's a difference between facing individual tragedies and recognizing the truth of what is in the moment in terms of our mortality versus holding a social vision, a prophetic vision and taking on hope as a practice, as a community. And it is probably true that, that for a lot of people, the personal and 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 political and general state of the world have been intertwined perhaps you know as much as ever in their lives and and you know there's there's anxiety about about the state of the world as as clearly affects personal well-being and 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 outlook and i guess in ter in terms of mortality i mean the death rate in in the united states jumped the most it had in decade because of, of COVID-19. I mean, we've seen, we've had so much loss collectively. It's, it's, it, I'm sure we haven't processed it as a society and, and individuals who, who've suffered those losses directly. So I guess I, I wanted to switch and ask a little bit about, 
about your story, maybe for those who are, are, are seeking to find hope in their own lives or, or to get beyond either losing a, a close loved one or, or, or even just dealing with everything we've had to deal with since thereabouts March 2020, or, or you can go back further to the election of, of 2016. So I know about roughly two decades ago, maybe, maybe a little more, you, you had, you had about a year period where you, where you suffered two unimaginable losses, pretty, pretty close together where, where you actually talk about, you know, one version of, of your life ended and another began, um, which is a fascinating concept. So I, I just, I just wanted to ask, could, could, could you tell us a little bit about what, what, you know, what happened and, and maybe we could talk about if any lessons you learned to get through it could, could help others? Um, I can, but um, I, I want to go back to something you said, so this will be a good editing job. Um, hope is not denying the reality of the present. In situations where we're experiencing or have experienced huge losses, whether as a community, you know, look what's happening in Florida right now, a nation with the pandemic, an individual um, person or family that's been touched by death or serious illness, you have to grieve. Grieving is necessary. Grieving, though, is not the same as hopelessness. Grief is a journey, and actually feeling hopeless and depressed is a stage on that journey. I'm not talking, when I'm talking about hope as a practice, I'm not talking about some fluffy thing. I'm not talking about denying the dangers that we face. I'm talking about a practice of active hope, as Joanna Macy calls it. The kind of hope that you do, that you act on as a practice because we need to hold a vision of possibility in order to make it happen. So I just, I, I wanna be clear about that. Um, and grief, is grief. And in my personal story, as you read, after my husband's, um, you know, sudden unexpected death, he was a young man who was in his mid 40s and he was as healthy as, I mean, he looked to be really healthy. Um, this was in about I, 1996 or so? Yeah. Um, in the immediate aftermath of his death, I was shattered. And I really saw, and I, I said to people, there's no such thing as, you know, there's no inherent meaning in the world, in reality. There's just the meaning that we create, you know, one toothpick at a time. And at any moment, you know, a wind can come along and just blow it down. So, in the shattering of a loss and the grief of a loss, feeling hopeless is, is part of the journey. Um, what I came to understand, and as I said, I, I learned this first from the Buddhists, um, was not only that impermanence is just the truth of life, and that if we resist change, if we resist change and impermanence, we create more suffering for ourselves because impermanence is inevitable. And what I learned from the Buddhists was this idea that you and I were just talking about, which is they have this idea of reincarnation. And I always thought, you know, sort of ignorantly <laughs> that, you know, reincarnation was some silly belief where, you know, if you're good, then you'll die and come back as a princess and 
if you're bad, you'll come back as a worm or something. But um, what I learned and what I came to understand is from the Buddhist point of view, we die and are reborn over and over and over again, spiritually, in the process of one embodied lifetime. And it was just words on a page that my mind was like trying to wrap my head around this idea. And then I had an experience that really sealed it into my heart, which was that I was invited to a Shabbos dinner one night. This is, I would probably say, you know, four or five months after he died. I was invited to a Shabbos dinner at, at, and they were people that I knew, but not people whose home I had ever been to before. They just invited me out of caring. And I was with my younger daughter, who hand I was holding as we were saying the blessings over the candles. And they sang, and I, you know, and they sang this song as we bless the source of life so we are blessed and as people know that's not actually the blessing over the candles on shabbos but that song was a song i was i was there the moment that song was written many years before i was at a jewish uh women's retreat, a feminist retreat, and the Philadelphia crew had organized this Torah service, and we sent women out into the, into the woods to receive Torah, and then come back with what they received. It was sort of a heady time in the early feminism. So instead of reading the, from the Torah, we were going to go receive Torah. And one of the women came back. And so we then came, all came back and we shared what we had received. And one of the women received that song. She was a songwriter and that was what she got. And I realized as I was standing there holding my daughter's hand who had not even been born at the, that point in time. And that I was with people that I really had never been to before. I suddenly realized, oh, that was a different lifetime. That was a different lifetime. My daughter hadn't been born. I was much younger. I was single. I hadn't met my husband who was now dead. That was a different lifetime. And then I realized, oh, I've actually lived several lifetimes. And I know how to give birth to myself. I've done it before. And then I realized, okay, birth is hard, but I know how to do it and I can do it again. I can give birth to a new life. And indeed I did. That concept of dying and being reborn many times in the course of one embodied lifetime is a very powerful truth. And I think, um, that most of us, if you think about it, you realize, oh, I actually have lived a few lifetimes already. Okay, if you're enjoying this interview, please hit the subscribe button and be among the first to know when a new episode appears. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Check out our back catalog for lots of other cool conversations. Do you want others to experience this level of dialogue? please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave a review. Positive ratings really help other people find out about, about the show. It's that whole algorithm thing that I don't really understand, but it works, trust me. All right, now back to the interview with Dr. Barbara Brightman. I understand correctly, this, this journey, which I'm sure was, was an extensive and transformative one, was... was either culminated or, or helped lead to your really bringing or helping to bring um, spiritual direction into the, into the Jewish realm. Is that, mm -hmm. is that correct? And yes, can you say a little bit more? Yeah. So um, it turns out that suffering and loss 
can be engines of spiritual transformation. They don't have to become that, you know, you can just be devastated and despairing and you've been through too much for too long and you are exhausted. And it's also possible though, which I had never understood that suffering and loss can actually be engines of spiritual growth. So for me, the way that it worked was I couldn't find what I needed. I was very plugged into Jewish community. I knew many wise rabbis and scholars and friends, but I needed something. I couldn't find what it was. I couldn't find what I needed. And um, I had a, I was teaching at RSC. I was teaching the pastoral care curriculum and I had signed up for a CPE program, a CPE, a year of CPE training. Clinical pastoral education, right? Clinical pastoral and the, education. At the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Right. Um, well, I didn't do it at the college. I did it at a hospital. But um, <clears throat> because I wasn't a rabbi, I knew that I needed the experience of serving as a chaplain in order to be training rabbis in pastoral care. So I, I did two units of CPE. The first unit um, was in September and my husband had died two months earlier. Wow. So I had to make a decision. Was I going to do this? Was I going to do CPE and put myself in a hospital being a chaplain to people who were sick and dying like two months after Chaim died? But something told me, yes, go do it. And in my CPE group, because CPE is this wonderful mix of people of all different faiths. And what I was discovering as I was meeting with people in the hospital was that um, because my own heart was so broken open, I was actually more accessible, more available to them to talk about the grief that they were going through, their fears and their faith and God. And in my, in my little CPE group, there was a, a Catholic laywoman and she said, Bobby, you know, you're doing spiritual direction. Do you, have you ever heard of it? I said, no, I've never heard of that. I have no idea what it is. She said, I'm going to bring you a brochure from um, a, a place called the Shalem Institute, where they do trainings in the Christian contemplative tradition for people to serve as spiritual directors. That's what you're doing. You are companioning people in their spiritual journeys and um, helping them listen for God in their lives, even at these times, like that's what you're doing. So I said, okay, I never heard of it. Um, and I, I couldn't go to Shalane right away, but within a year or two, I went to Shalane and I was the only Jew in my group and um, <clears throat> I learned this practice of a certain kind of spiritual companioning that wasn't therapy, that was a, a dimension of pastoral care, but it wasn't necessarily dependent on um, on um, drawing on a particular practice from a religious tradition. It was really about helping people feel connected to the holy during these times of, well, during times of loss and celebration. And, um, and I realized that that's what I had needed after Chaim died. And that, um, I couldn't find it with the Jews, that we didn't have this exactly. So um, actually, you know, Jacob turned out at the same moment 
had discovered spiritual direction at Chestnut Hill College. And he was in conversation with the sisters there. Talk about, about Jacob Staub, our executive that, producer, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. That he had been in conversation with um, the Catholic sisters from Chestnut Hill College because they had a program in spiritual direction. And he had gotten interested in bringing that to this to the students or some form of that. And I said, Jacob, I, I am studying this, I'm reading about this, and um, this would be a great thing to bring to RSC. So, you know, together we created the program in spiritual direction at RSC around the year 2000. So a rabbi or a rabbi in training goes through spiritual direction now. What is it? I mean, what is it like? They, I mean, from what I understand, they don't actually have to meet with a rabbi. It could be somebody from any, any tradition, right? What, what, what do you do? Do you just sit around and talk for an hour? Like how, how can you paint a picture? So, well, first of all, so in Christian seminaries for, for a very long time, a part of um, part of people's training or part of people's experience at school is that they need seminarians need to be in spiritual direction while they're going through a uh, seminary. And the process of becoming a rabbi or becoming a clergy person is its own spiritual journey. And what Jacob had been looking for at the school, and they had tried a number of different things, was, you know, students were complaining that they came to the school and they were learning, you know, a lot of academic learning and studying text, but they didn't feel like the school was really giving them the, you know, they the spiritual nourishment that they, that they needed. Like RSC is in much better shape now than it was then in, in, the, in, in terms of that. Because, you know, the traditional model of the rabbi is a scholar, a tamid chacham. That doesn't mean there weren't chassidim and spiritual workers, and you know, there were. Being in spiritual direction as a student is really supporting students to integrate what they're learning about all these different times in Jewish history and the different theologies and theologians that they are studying and supporting them, first of all, to integrate what they're learning with their own spiritual, with their own sense of spirituality. Who is God for them? Now we've, I've learned about, you know, Maimonides and I've studied Zohar and I've, you know, the Hasidic Rebbe's, but I'm now becoming a rabbi. People are going to come to me with their God questions. I need to be able to reflect on who is God for me? What is this? What is a spiritual journey? How, how am I being called? And, um, you know, students go through a huge transformation in those five or six years. And a spiritual director is like a regular companion that supports them on their path and the integration of what's happening in their personal lives, what they're learning, and their sense of who or what is the holy. And in the, the Jewish world, does this still mostly exist in the, within the context of, of the seminaries, the rabbinical schools, or are we seeing rabbis offer spiritual direction to their congregants, to their students, to whoever they would interact with as part of their rabbinate? Initially, I thought, oh, this will be, you know, one of those one generation phenomenon. But it turns out that actually spiritual direction, you know, RSC was the first seminary. Um, 
And then um, HUC now is offering spiritual direction on all three of their campuses. That's Hebrew the college. seminary, right? Hebrew Union yeah. College, right. Hebrew Union College. The um, in Hebrew College in Boston has people in spiritual direction. JTS just started doing that. Jewish Theological that, Seminary, right. Right. That, so yes, these are all people that are in seminary. These are rabbinical students. But there are now um, also lay people. And yes, I think that it's, it seems to be spreading that people, Jews, there are Jews that are interested in that form of spiritual companionship which I'm kind of surprised at. Um, there's a Jewish Spiritual Directors Association now, and they're like, I don't know, like 300 people. <laughs> and they're around the country and they're not all working in seminaries. So this, you know, this concept of spiritual direction in the Jewish community, contemporary Jewish community is more, you know, initially, People never heard of it at all. Now, you know, people sort of know about it. And people who are not rabbis are both offering spiritual companionship and um, wanting to be in spiritual direction. Okay, another short time out here. If you'd like to support these groundbreaking conversations of Evolve on the podcast, on the website, in our web conversations, or even the curricula we're producing, you can engage in citizen philanthropy and support us. Every gift matters. There's a donate link in our show notes. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Okay, now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Now you may uniquely be qualified to answer this, this next question. You're, you're, you're uh, um, been a therapist for many years, a tra trauma-informed therapist. You've also been involved in, in the training of, of rabbis over, over two decades. Can you compare what yeah. the experience is like for pastoral care versus with a clergy member versus a therapist and, you know, and a how does, right. Yeah. And how does one, one, you know, how does one know whether you should seek one or the other, or, or, you know, I, I imagine both could, you know, Maybe mm -hmm. they can complement one another, but, but, you know, how, I guess, yeah, how they, do you know they, if you need a rabbi or, 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 or a therapist? So I'm, I'm going to do it this way. So I'm going to talk about some of the, the ways that I understand the differences between therapy, pastoral care, pastoral counseling, and spiritual direction. So first of all, the occasion for entering therapy is usually pretty much always because something in your life isn't working. Either you're in pain, you're depressed, or you're anxious, or you know, you're having some emotional suffering, or you're having a hard time getting a job, or you're not liking your job and it's making you depressed, or relationships, intimate relationships aren't working out, you have stress in your family. So the point is the occasion for entering therapy is being in some kind of distress, emotional distress. And what you hope for from therapy is to work it out, um, find solutions and, and relieve the, the mental or emotional suffering. And you know, there are countless modalities of therapy, but all of them, the goal is that you're entering and you're suffering, you're hurting. And when you stop therapy, you're feeling somewhat better, at least somewhat better. Um, pastoral care is, first of all, people enter or get into a relationship with a rabbi or a clergy person, both around times of um, loss and times of celebration, you know, life cycle transitions, weddings, births, bat mitzvahs. Um, so you seek out the help of, of a rabbi or the support of a rabbi 
for pastoral care at times of great joy. It's not all about suffering. But when you are going to a rabbi because you're in pain, it's the sufferings of mortality. It's illness and death and or ethical issues. But the sufferings of mortality and mortality is not something that we cure. The, the pastoral caregiver is drawing on the wisdom of the tradition, on the rituals of the tradition, on prayer and liturgy and Jewish community to support somebody through the inevitable sufferings of mortality. So you feel that support, but you're not going to be cured of being mortal. Spiritual direction, I think of as a dimension of pastoral care. It can be a standalone practice, but it's a dimension of pastoral care where the focus is more on exploring your sense of your connection to the holy, to God, to the infinite, spiritual experience, and also listening for how you're being called uniquely in your lifetime or at this moment to be on the life journey that you are uniquely called to be on. Another way I like to think about the differences has to do with time. So often in therapy, there's a big focus on the past, trying to make sense of our lives and the problems we're having in the present based upon how we were shaped or misshaped or hurt in the past. And being able to reflect on that and see that really we may be um, triggered in the present by all trauma or hurt that is preventing us from actually seeing the truth or meeting the moment in the present. In the dimension of time that we're working in as pastoral caregivers is mythic time, is ancient time, is um, the, the zone of, you know, tradition, religion, tradition, the prayers, the ancient prayers, the rituals, the wisdom of the ages. The rabbis are bringing that to touch the moment of suffering in mortality. In spiritual direction, we're listening for how we're being called into the future. And if you pay attention or if you notice, you know, when God speaks to people in the Torah, especially yeah, in Torah, God's often saying, you know, I will make of you a great nation. Um, lech lecha. Go forth from this moment into the wilderness, to the place that I will show you. God is, in, in Torah, God is, calls us into the future. And that this is also true for people in the present. If we listen into our lives to try to hear that call and um, a spiritual director supports people to listen into their lives to hear that call. So jumping off that, what you've learned clinically, academically about trauma and, 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 and what you've experienced, how has that helped you help others find and cultivate resilience? It's also another great question. And it's really true. I mean, what I learned by living through, of, I, I had no idea before my cousin was murdered and my husband died suddenly. I had no idea that I had the strength to live through something like that. If somebody had told me a year before, this is what's about to happen to you. Your cousin's going to get murdered. You're going to have to figure out what to do with her children who have no other parent. And a year later, your husband's going to die. I would have been like, how am I going to get through that? I, and I would have been completely freaked out. But I discovered that 
I had strength in me that I didn't know that I had. I bring that to the work that I do with people in therapy and in direction. It's like I hold their hand at times figuratively and I say, you, are, you can get through this. You can. I'm not going to tell you you're going to enjoy it. Actually, a nun, a Catholic sister who I, I um, got to know in the spiritual direction world said to me once, she said, in the Bible, God says, um, I will be with you. And God doesn't say, and it will be easy. <laughs> so um, I'm not going to say that it's going to be easy to get through this crisis or through this trauma. But I know, I know that you can do this. Now, I wouldn't say that to somebody who I thought couldn't do it. There are people who can't. And they deserve love and care as well. They deserve support and companionship. But they may not get through it in the sense that I did and get reborn on the other side into another life. Those people, when I teach rabbinical students pastoral care, you know, I say, like, not everybody is going to keep getting reborn. Um, and everybody deserves companionship. But when I have a sense that people have an inner strength in them and they don't know it yet, the fact that I know from my kishkis that you can get through this, I think I, it really helps people. I'll say, you know, we're going to do this together. We're going to get through it. We're gonna, I'm going to walk with you. And you're going to get to the other side. So in an attempt to bring this full circle back to back to your essay, back to the talk you gave at Germantown Jewish Center, in a sense, you were you were in some way trying to bring what you do in individual therapy and, and, and offer words that was healing to to a community. And and you did this at a very particular time in December 2020, which until that time had been the deadliest American month in terms of COVID-19, which was later surpassed by January. And in the wake of the election where we didn't, we didn't know if there was going to be a peaceful transfer of power or, or what was going to happen. And, and you really tailored your, your remarks to that, to that particular moment. And just wondering where we're talking and, and our listeners are going to hear this in the summer of 2021. Um, in a lot of ways, things are looking up. Although if you're, if you're looking for reasons for pessimism, you don't have to look far. Um, so wondering if, you know, if you gave this, if you gave this talk today, would it be fun? Would you have a fundamentally different message? Would you, would you say anything different? Um, well, so it's really interesting to me. I, I mean, I, you know, because we were talking about my own journey and then, you know, this talk, like, I think you're seeing something that I didn't see. Like, I didn't see when I wrote the talk about hope as a moral imperative, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is what I believe about myself as a person. So now I'm going to apply it to this big situation. But I guess you're right. I mean, there is a thread that connects them. So what I would say, and I, I think it would still, I mean, it would look different, but it would still be the same, the same message. In other words, I refuse to believe that we're going to lose our democracy. I'm just not willing to accept that. That is not okay with me. Like, okay, this terrible thing's gonna happen and we're gonna all lose our democracy. It's like, no, I believe that this democracy can survive this challenge and actually get better and be more inclusive. And that black people and brown people and poor people 
that we can create a much more racially just, economically just um, society. And I'm going to act on that belief, just like I, you know, volunteered to be at a, you know, at a, at a, what do you call it, a voting place during the Trump election. Like it was, I, it was inconceivable to me that this man was going to be president again. It's not acceptable. Climate change, this is different. I think that we really have to look at the truth and we have to act as if we can bring about a transformation in our culture and in this world. Um, because if there's any hope, if there's any chance that we can do that, it's going to be because we work our asses off in order to try to bring that transformation into being. So I'm going to operate on hope as a moral imperative, even though at a feeling level, I'm scared to death. But that's exactly the point of why hope is an ethical imperative, because I have to behave and act in community with other people according to the vision that we can transform our culture and our society. And hopefully other countries are gonna do the same thing. Barbara Bryman, I, I can't thank you enough for this uh, this conversation. Um, I, I know we, we we went over some rough rough terrain, but I really appreciate um, your openness and articulateness, and and um, you know I think I think we really gave our, our listeners something. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the conversation with Dr. Barbara Brightman about her evolve essay, "Hope as an Ethical Imperative." So what did you think of today's episode? I'd love to hear from you. Evolve is about curating meaningful conversations, and you are a part of that. Send me your questions, comments, feedback. You can reach me at bschwartzman at reconstructingjudaism.org. We will be back next month with a brand new episode. Evolve, Groundbreaking Jewish Conversations is executive produced by Rabbi Jacob Staub and edited by Sam Walks. Our theme song, Ilufinu, is by Rabbi Miriam Margols. This show is a production of Reconstructing Judaism. I'm your host, Brian Schwartzman, and I will see you next time. <laughs>